Um, let me first welcome you to the second of the Latrobe Asia seminars. Um, today's seminar, as I hope you're all aware, is a bit of a preview for Asia's two big elections that are coming up in the first half of this year. That is the elections in uh, India and in Indonesia. Now we've selected these two to spend our time on. There are other elections in, in Asia. Um, but these two we think are particularly interesting, partly because they're an area that we teach on and research on and have interest in, but also because these are Asia's big two democracies. Uh, and that there's actually a little bit similar, uh, or some lines of similarity between the two, which I think are worth thinking a little bit about, apart from the fact they're both very big democracies. Both are countries that have enjoyed a, um, have governments that have enjoyed a long period in government, but, with, there's a, but in both cases there's a good degree of scepticism about just what those governments have achieved and their capacity to, to um, make good on many of the significant challenges that those two societies face. Indonesia and India both face similar sorts of challenges to do with things like governance and infrastructure and corruption. So you see similar, you will be seeing similar themes playing out in the electoral politics of these two societies. But also interestingly, economically, they're in a fairly similar spot. Uh, Indonesia has around a, G a GDP per capita purchasing power parity of around 5,000 US dollars, and India has around 4,000 US dollars. So they're both moving up the development chain, and both are entering into the territory that economists like to call um, the middle income trap. That's to say it's quite easy to take or relatively easy to take big steps early on up the development, economic development ladder. But once you get to around that four or $5,000 mark, taking the next steps becomes uh, a great deal more challenging. Uh, the format for today's session will be first uh, Dr. Dirk Thompson from Politics and International Relations will be talking about Indonesia for about 20 minutes or so. Then we'll turn to Dr. Ian Wolford. Ian's a new staff member at, uh, at La Trobe, fresh from a... Uh, from the, the frozen northeast of the United States, where we have rescued him with uh, 42 degree summer days, uh, and Ian is in the Hindi uh, is a Hindi lecturer and also lectures in South Asian studies. So, Dirk first, Indonesia first, principally because Indonesia's election is coming first, or we think it is, um, and then India, and then that should leave us a good 40 minutes or so for Q and A. So, without any further from me, I will turn you straight over to Dirk. Um, each of whom have kindly produced some slides to support their act. Thank you, Dirk. Thank you, Nick. And thanks, everyone, for coming. I coerced a few students to come. Some have followed. It's good. Okay, so a colleague of mine from the ANU was asked to give us a very similar talk just recently, and he had an hour. So I have about 20 minutes, so I'll try to be <laughs> uh, as concise as possible. That's what I want to do. Assuming that most of you will know at least a little bit about Indonesia, but maybe not that much, so I'll give you a two-minute overview of Indonesia's democratization process since 1998 um, so that we know why this election this year is so important. Indonesia is not only about to enter the middle income trap, but it may also... Um, enter this phase now where it has gone through a 10-year period of a relatively stable democratic governance, but now it's facing this period of a potential contest between the forces that may be more inclined to follow the practices of the old style uh, versus forces who may be more inclined to open up the regime a bit more to try a new style of governance. So then I introduce the main players that you need to watch if you're following the elections and some of the key factors that may determine the results. 
and I may also do what social, social scientists usually should never do, speculate about some of the outcomes and what that may mean um, for domestic and international politics. Okay, so as I said, I assume that most of you will know at least a little bit about Indonesia. So what matters is that it had about 40 years of authoritarian rule until, what, 1998, 30-odd years under Suharto, right-wing military-backed dictator, but even before that, it wasn't democratic. Sukarno's um, late years were also fairly authoritarian. So a long, long period um, in which other countries have developed you know, democratic rules and regulations where Indonesia was basically becoming accustomed increasingly to um, the normality of um, dictatorial rule. Then in 1998, um, partly to do with the Asian financial crisis at the time, but also domestic factors, um, the dictator was toppled, democracy began, and since 1998, Indonesia has been quite successful, actually, in um, overcoming many of the challenges that emerged naturally um, through, through this period um, of transition. So I'll just list some of the most important ones. Um, it's revised and amended its constitution to sort of create um, yeah, reasonably clear, um, reasonably clear um, rules and regulations that outline the basic structure of the state. Um, it is now... Broadly, a broad consensus basically that Indonesia is not an Islamic state based on Islamic law. This was a debate very early on in 98, but by about 2002 it was settled that um, this would not happen and Indonesia would basi basically not be a secular state but also not an Islamic state. So a state where religion plays a role um, but it doesn't follow um, Islamic law. Um, it has introduced regular, free and fair, mostly peaceful elections. Um, that are held every five years now. So the first was in 1999, then in 2004 and 2009, and now we're coming up to the 2014 election, which, as I said before, um, will be quite an important contest about the future of Indonesia. Um, 2009, the election of Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, the current president, was an important milestone because it was the um, first time that a president was actually re-elected to a second term. In the early years of the transition, there was a fair bit of political instability with many presidents serving very short terms only uh, for a number of reasons. Then Yudhoyono got elected in 2004 and was re-elected in 2009. So he had 10 years, basically, to guide Indonesia through this um, early years of um, democracy. He was successful in containing separatism in Aceh. He was instrumental, though probably not the key, but he was instrumental in sort of on creating the peace deal there. He has been less successful in Papua, but Papua is still ongoing, but is, um, is not as organized and bloody as Aceh was. Um, the, his government has been quite successful in the fight against terrorism. Most of you will remember Jemaah Islamiyah, but if you think very hard, when was actually the last time that you heard of Jemaah Islamiyah? It's um, basically disappeared um, in the fight against terror Clearly, the Yudhoyono government has been quite successful. And it has also guided Indonesia through a period of very stable, consistent economic growth um, over the last 10 years or so. I think um, regular growth rates of about 6%, so fairly good um, by any means. Nevertheless, there remain a large amount of problems. I've put up four images here to sort of illustrate or highlight these problems, so this here is, I think, is Sumatra, but it could also be Kalimantan. 
um, or anywhere else where a few years ago there was still forest. Um, deforestation, illegal logging is a massive problem. Um, it causes huge environmental problems, but it is also indicative of broader problems in governance structures, in corruption, um, that this can go um, basically on without any, any chance of reining that in meaningfully. Um, so environmental problems, I think, are quite significant and will become a huge problem for Indonesia in the future. Um, if I say that governance problems contribute to this, um, and corruption in particular, this guy here is the latest in a long, long series um, of corruption cases in the last few years. He is the, or he was, the Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court, who is currently on trial for corruption. Um, so still very senior figures in all branches of government are regularly exposed for corruption. So on the one hand, it shows that the fight against corruption is ongoing and that there is some progress, and it also shows that corruption is still rife in almost every sector of government uh, in Indonesia. Um, we've seen a deterioration of um, what is broadly accepted um, in terms of um, harmony between different religious groups. Um, at the very early beginning of 1998, we had serious clashes. We had civil wars, basically, between religious and ethnic groups. Uh, that was contained fairly quickly, and then for about 10 years or so, um, it was reasonably well-maintained, the harmony between the groups. But in the last two, three, four years, um, we see that um, radical fanatic Islamic groups are becoming increasingly assertive and um, are often very aggressive, and there have been various instances um, of riots, killings of um, especially members of the Ahmadiyya sect, but also at times um, attacks against Christians. And there, the Uriona administration has clearly failed to rein that in um, and to um, get a grip with these um, hardline Islamic groups. They're not terror groups as such. Um, there are no bombs anymore in Indonesia, but um, it's often mob violence that is just um, left to sort of... Um, to go uncontrolled. And I put up here Mr. Bakri and Mr. Laksono as sort of yeah, representatives of the old elite, basically, who are still very influential in Indonesia. Um, surely these guys are not clean by any means, but they're also not whatever particularly uh, worse as criminals or crooks than others. Um, but what what they stand for is basically people who were socialized into politics during the new order, who basically still operate by the same kinds of means, who buy their way into power mostly through money. Um, and both of them are active in the party that used to be the government party under the new order, um, Gorka, and that's why they're wearing these yellow jackets. That's the color of Gorka. Um, so there are still many, many of these figures in all major parties in the government but there's also now a new breed of younger politicians coming through, and um, this election this year will be, to some extent, about the contest between those um, emerging forces and the old guys. Okay, so what's at stake then is basically whether we will see, or what kind of change we will see. It's almost um, clear that we will see some kind of change after the 2014 election, because um, the most likely winners are very different in their style um, from the current president, Yudhoyono. Um, Yudhoyono has had his achievements. He has also had his failures. Um, but if you ask Indonesians, what he basically is now is sort of you know, a lame duck, um, a, a 
president who doesn't really care about the grassroots, who is very risk-averse, who basically just wants to get through his term and not do anything anymore. And he has been like this for the last one or two years, sort of very aloof. Um, so his popularity rating has dropped from about 70% in 2009 when he was re-elected to about 30% by now. Uh, so he can't run again. If he did, if he could run again, he would probably not win again. But he can't run again because of constitutional arrangements that a president can only have two consecutive terms. Um, so we will have a new president after this, but the presidential election um, is not the only election this year. First of all, in April, we will have a parliamentary election. And the two are directly linked to one another because the presidential candidates need to be nominated by political parties that win at least 25% of the vote in the April election or 20% of the seats in parliament. So either only parties which win a huge chunk of the votes in April or coalitions of parties who together will cobble together more than 20% um, will be allowed to nominate a candidate. So even though we know who are the likely candidates, there are a lot who want to run, but we know who are the most likely candidates who will be nominated. But by which party exactly they will be nominated and under what circumstances, that is um, what everyone's speculating about. And that's partly why it's um, so important to watch the parliamentary election first and see which parties um, get what results. So the system then necessitates coalition building because it's unlikely. Indonesia doesn't have big parties um, that will easily get 30 or 40%. Most parties um, are much smaller. Um, so we will have 12 parties who will contest the elections. See the symbols up here. Um, if you wonder why there is a gap here between 10 and 14, um, in Aceh at the northern tip of Sumatra, um, we will also have some local parties who will contest elections only at the local level. They get the numbers 11, 12, and 13. Um, but these 12 parties up here, they are the only ones who will be allowed to contest the national election. This is a, a sample or, uh, um, of the ballot paper. So we have an open list proportional representation system in Indonesia. So if you vote there, you get this list with all the parties, and then you have listed the number of candidates depending on, usually depending on size um, of the electoral district uh, which you're based in. Um, so you can vote for the party or you can vote for the candidate you like. So you see all the candidates um, listed there on the ballot paper. So as I said, out of these 12 parties, there are only two, the, the ones that have the numbers four and five here, that can be described as reasonably big parties. Um, one is PDIP, and the other one is Gorka. The red one here is PDIP, which, um, during, which sort of traces its history to the New Order days as an opposition party. Um, and then Golka used to be, during the New Order, the government party. By now, this has all become very, very blurred. But PDIP, remarkably, has actually been in opposition for the entire Yudhoyono period. That's unusual because almost every other party, except for Girindra, number six, and Hanura, number ten, has actually joined the government. Everyone wants to be part of the government in order to get access to patronage resources, etc., but PDIP has been quite consistent, largely for personal reasons, because its leader, Megawati Sukarno Putri, has a personal grudge against Yudhoyono. And um, for that reason, largely, she has refused to become part of his government. But it may pay off now in 2014, because it can sort of 
portray itself as a party that has been consistent, that has shown some sort of uh, programmatic consistency in opposing government policies, etc. So these two, four and five, they will be the parties that are likely to win probably around 20%. Um, if no presidential candidates are nominated before the parliamentary election, probably both will win just under 20 um, but if the candidates, it's up to the parties when they do that, if uh, PDRP in particular nominates its candidate before, this is likely to affect its result in the parliamentary election, and I'll explain in a second why that is. Um, and then most of the other parties are struggling to gain any mass support. Uh, most of them are expected to win something between 5 and 10%, and several um, will get actually lower than that, and there is a parliamentary threshold of 3.5%. So any party that gets less than that will not get a seat in parliament. So if you win 3.2% of the um, votes, you will still have zero seats um, in parliament. And there's quite a few parties um, that may be at risk of failing to meet this threshold. Um, Yudha Jonas' party is here number seven, the blue, blue, red, and white logo. The mouse has died on me. Oh, no, there it is again. Here, number seven. Um, this was the biggest party in the last election, um, benefiting from Yudha Jonas' popularity back then. Now it's suffering from Yudha Jonas' declining popularity, and in the polls it's now, yeah, depending on what poll you believe, somewhere um, between 6 and 9%. It had 20% in the last election, so um, this will almost certainly go down. So you saw on the ballot paper that you have the party symbol at the top and then you have the legislative candidates. So the candidates in many ways are equally important as the parties. For many voters, they are more important. And for the candidates themselves, certainly the candidates is what matters. What parties they run for, well, for some candidates it matters, but for others it doesn't really. Um, they just want to get into parliament. The parties... Several of them have very, very shallow programs, um, so candidates often jump um, between different parties. And when they campaign, it looks like this. They will put big pictures of themselves. Um, they will put where on the list their names will be, leaving the other one blank so that every voter knows where they will be um, on the ballot paper. And the party symbols are usually very small. Up here, for example, you have the PDIP logo here. Um, this one has only the name of the party here, um, and it uses the color yellow, um, which stands for Gorka. Here also red stands for PDIP. Um, here also Pada Democrat, fairly small. So the candidates are very central to the campaign. People often elect their candidates um, first and foremost, and then they look what party they're running for, especially at the local level. At the national level, um, it's still a bit more party-driven, but at the local level, and I didn't mention it at the beginning, um, there will be concurrent elections for the national parliament, the provincial parliament, and the district parliament. So in one election, in April, Indonesians have to fill in those three ballot papers at the same time, plus a ballot paper for the upper house. It's an entirely different matter yet again. So all in all, there will be about, I think, 20,000 parliamentary seats to be filled in this election on all levels. Okay, but... Internationally, for most of us, what matters much more is the presidential election. Locally, for a lot of people, the local elections matter much more um, because it's not the president who will build the road in the village, but it's the local district head or um, a member of the local parliament who will lobby for that. Um, but for us here, internationally, I think we're more 
interested in the presidential elections. And these are the two guys that you need to watch, Prabovo Subianto and Joko Widodo, usually known under his nickname, Jokowi. And in the middle, you see Megawati Sukarno Putri, who in many ways will be or is expected to be the kingmaker in this election. So the relation is these guys are the two frontrunners in the polls. Um, Prabhu Subianto heads a party called Girindra, which at the moment fares at about uh, 8% or so in the polls. Um, so he will not be able to be nominated just by his party, but he will need to get a coalition together. Um, but from the par- aside from the party in the polls for presidential candidates, he usually um, is around uh, 20% or so. So he's reasonably popular. Um, what he stands for, I will explain in a second. So his rival is the current governor or mayor of Jakarta. And um, he is hugely popular. He is the front runner in all the polls. And he is a member of PDIP. And if PDIP nominates him, he is almost certainly to win. However, he is only the mem- a member of the PDIP. The chairwoman of PDIP is this woman here, who used to be president between 2001 and 2004, and who many people say would like to be president again. In the polls, however, she is very much down at about 5% public support or so, maybe a bit more. So now we get to the various um, speculations. Um, since Nick gave me just the five-minute mark, um, the, what's, what's coming up first is the legislative election. And um, as I said, image and sort of what the individual candidates stand for is very, very important there. But I skip over that and stay with the um, presidential elections. So what will determine um, the result of the election? It's largely the image, really, of the candidate. You directly elect your president, something we don't have in a parliamentary democracy like Australia. So you basically just look at the candidate. Maybe you look a little bit to the party that nominates him, but it's mostly about the candidates. What does he stand for? And Jacobi and Prabowo both stand for very different styles to Yudhoyono. As I said, Yudhoyono um, is now regarded or has been regarded for quite a while as aloof, not very close to the people, um, very hands-off, doesn't really want to do much, delegates almost everything. These guys are very different. Jokowi likes to, or has made it sort of a hallmark of his um, way of doing politics, both in Jakarta and in the small town in Java where he was mayor before, of mingling with the people. So he is very regarded as very close to the people, and people love him for that. Um, So he doesn't show any of these elitist signs that many politicians um, in Indonesia display. Prabowo also does that occasionally, but his image is more, also very different from Yudhoyono, of the tough guy who will tackle the problems that Indonesia has at the moment hands-on. And if necessary, and that's why I chose this picture, if necessary, with a bit more force than we currently see. Um, He is a former commander of the armed forces, of the special forces in the armed forces, and he was implicated in various human rights violations, both within Indonesia as well as East Timor. Um, He currently does not get a visa to travel to either Australia or the United States because of that. So if he was to become president, Indonesia would face some really uh, huge diplomatic challenges as well. So two different options, basically. Um, Are we unhappy with Yudhoyono because he's not doing much? That's more or less consensus in Indonesia now. But what do we want? Someone who tries to look at everyday's problems for everyday citizens, 
So Jacoby, there's numerous videos of him on YouTube how you know he goes out to the neighborhoods and talks about how to collect the rubbish and stuff like that. Whereas Prabowo sees more, you know, the bigger picture. He wants Indonesia to be a big power in Southeast Asia, um, and so a very different approach, um, which still appeals to quite a few people. <coughs> now, who will win? We don't know. As I said, it depends on the um, nominations. So I focused on Jokowi here because if he gets nominated, it doesn't matter who else gets nominated. All the polls indicate that he will win by a huge margin. Um, so the problem is within his party. So he may be nominated by his party PDIP, and he may get a vice presidential candidate of his choice. If that happens, he'll sweep the field. I dare predict that. If he gets nominated by another party but still gets a candidate of his choice, he will also win. And that is possible that will happen if Megawati says the presidency should be mine, this is my party, I will not nominate you. In that case, I'm pretty sure that Jokowi will say, well, I'm a member of PDRP, but all the polls say that I'll be president, so I just seek the nomination from some of the other smaller parties who will need a candidate um, who have had a worse result than PDRP, and then he will run there. So that's the second option. Um, then there's also the possibility that Megawati will say, why don't we run together? In that case, they will probably win. Um, but I don't think it would be a good option for Megawati because everyone knew that they would win because of Jokowi. Um, and Jokowi would probably not want to enter this ticket as well um, because he would only be second fiddle even though he knows that he's actually the man the people want to be the president. There's also the possibility that... Um, Prabowo may say, if Megawati doesn't allow you to run as candidate from PDIP, why don't you run with me? Um, the subplot to this is that Prabowo financed the campaign of Jokowi to become governor of Jakarta. So he may appeal to that sense of loyalty, saying, look, I made you what you are now. Why don't we run together? It's also a possibility. Nothing should be ruled out. And finally, there's the possibility that... Political maneuvers by the various sides will result in Jokowi not running at all. Megawati may say to him right now, yeah, the polls say you'll win. We'll, we, we'll do that, but we wait with the announcement until you know, all coalition partners are on board, everything is sorted, and at the last minute you may change your mind. PDIP may not hand in the papers for Jokowi's nomination, and if that happens really late, it may be too late for Jokowi to cobble together a coalition to nominate him. It's possible. It's unlikely, but it's possible. Um, it would be a, yeah, a travesty for Indonesia's democracy if that happened, because as I said, he is now clearly the favorite, and he arguably also has the best track record of any of those politicians, um, even though it's only at a local level. So what it would mean then, this is just to finish off, that of course we don't know exactly, but we can just sort of speculate from the way these people are running their campaigns. Um, in Jakarta... Jokowi has, as I said, proven to be very hands-on. He likes to mingle with the people. He would probably, he has no experience whatsoever in foreign policy. He would probably delegate foreign policy to some experienced diplomats. Um, he would be likely conti to continue the broader macroeconomic policies of Yudhoyono, but he would just try to bring a new style to the presidential office. Um, he, he may clash over this with parliament, because parliament um, may want to assert its authority vis-a-vis -vis him, but that goes into too many details. But in a nutshell, what we would see would be a different approach to the presidency and one that could hopefully lead to some changes in the way Indonesians see their politicians. If Prabowo wins, um, 
as I said, power would probably be much more centralized. It's possible that the military would be given a slightly more prominent role than it has. In fact, some observers have, have said that it's, it's not, it can't be ruled out that, because Prabowo has made some statements where he says that he doesn't think democracy is really working for Indonesia. So it's, it's possible that he may drive back some of the reforms that have happened, especially in regards to decentralization, giving more power to the regions and lower areas. But foreign policy, that would be the big problem. Um, he's known as an economic nationalist. He would probably be very protectionist in terms of economic policy. And he would have to negotiate to travel because, as I said, in the West, he is a persona non grata. Thanks. Fantastic. Thank you, Dirk. Um, that's another theme which I'm sure Ian will touch on in his remarks. So this is a really big year for democracy in India. By, by the end of May, by May 31st, uh, an electorate of upward of, of 800 million people will go to the polls. And this is generally a, 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 an energized and excited electorate. And it's, it's the largest uh, electorate on the planet. Uh, from where I've been observing things, so this is primarily from the U.S. and last month from Melbourne and primarily on, on social media, looking at material in, in English and in Hindi, pretty much everyone, whatever their, their political leanings uh, might be, seem to agree that we're in the middle of a big shift in Indian national politics. And there are three things that I'm watching. Uh, one is, is the issue of caste-based and uh, religion-based politics. This is a cartoon from the 1990s where it shows uh, the Hindu, uh, the BJP, generally associated with Hindu nationalist groups, uh, building a, a vote bank from, from the remains of a mosque that was destroyed. It was a very contentious issue on which uh, members of this party were campaigned on a platform of, of a Hindu temple being built here. So they're building a vote bank. And what this means is the rise of, of various regional parties in India uh, an increased amount of, of caste-based politics where local parties appeal to the perceived uh, desires of, of, of religion-based or caste-based groups. So they make promise to these groups which may or may not be kept. And this is called vote banking, vote bank politics. And all parties will denounce vote bank politics and all parties accuse uh, each other of engaging in it, uh, the politics of the vote bank. And on the national level, you have the national parties who may or may not engage this to some degree when they visit various areas uh, and make these promises or not. So on the national level right now, we have the Congress party. They're the ruling party. And they're characterized by, by right now, the word that's being thrown a lot is, is secularism. Although it's a very problematic term when looking at Congress, it's, it's very ill-defined right now. Uh, it's what secularism means with them, and then challenging them uh, is the BJP. Uh, this is an opposition party, which has its roots in Hindu nationalism. This is, is generally associated with Hindu nationalism, though this is also very problematic. Uh, and they're trying to renegotiate this for the 21st century in terms of this, this idea of secularism. This debate is being played out very publicly now. There's a lot of discussion about what all this means. The second thing I'm watching uh, is this anti-corruption movement, which has gained speed. And I see some people nodding right now, so that's something you're familiar with. So it's gained speed over the last few decades, but really in December, uh, just blasted uh, into the, the, the front pages with the election in Delhi of the, uh, Arvind Kejriwal as chief minister and his anti-corruption Aam Admi Party, the Common Man Party, 
he defeated a much-loved uh, Congress um, minister who, incidentally, she, uh, Sheila Dixit, just yesterday was, was uh, selected to be governor of the state of Kerala. So she's doing okay, but, but it was a complete surprise. Uh, and and bodes, sort of, uh, bodes not well for the Congress party in the national elections right now. But they ran on this anti-corruption movement, which is causing a lot of stirs in Indian politics right now. And the third thing I'm interested in is just the issue of social media in general. And I recognize a couple of people in here right now who are active on Twitter and following this. And so you know that, um, well, if you believe the current polls and if you believe the rhetoric on Twitter and on Facebook right now, no matter what, the people who are most vocal, I don't know if it's most people or not, but the people who are most vocal online definitely do not support the current ruling government. And definitely, I mean, you can see Narendra Modi, we'll talk about him in a bit, but he's the leader of the opposition party right now, and he has upwards of 3 million followers on Twitter. And, and things are pretty heated online. Uh, it's very, what Modi's doing online is very reminiscent of what Barack Obama did in the U.S. Uh, in 2008. And the, India hasn't seen anything like this before, so I think we're definitely seeing sort of the new way that politics is playing out in India. So some background. Except for a few episodes, India has been ruled almost entirely um, by one party, the Indian National Congress. This is the Congress Party uh, since independence in 1947. Uh, And this is the party that's currently in power, with Manmohan Singh serving as prime minister. He's serving his second term right now. And this party, the Congress Party, has been dominated by a single family, the Nehru Gandhi, uh, the Nehru Gandhi political dynasty. Here you see Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister, voting for the partition of India and Pakistan. His daughter, Indira Gandhi, was also prime minister, a very exciting, amazing, controversial figure. Here she is in one of her less controversial uh, engagements, inaugurating the Latrobe Library in 1968. This university has had a relationship with India dating back to its founding. Um, And then now with Sonia Gandhi. This is Indira Gandhi's daughter-in-law, who is the leader of the party, the the chairperson of the Congress Party and the United Progressive Alliance. There's Prime Minister Manmohan Singh and Sonia Gandhi's son, Rahul Gandhi. He's presumed to be the Prime Minister, their PM candidate, although he hasn't stated uh, a desire for this and probably won't do so before the election, given the way things look like they're headed for this party. Uh, Manmohan Singh in general, is seen as, as rather ineffectual right now, right? He was never elected to power. Sonia Gandhi, she's India's kingmaker right now. We just heard some of this uh, similar situation in, in Indonesia. So in 2004, she selected him to be prime minister. She could have been prime minister herself, but she's continually uh, turned down the role. She could have been prime minister many times over. Um, I mean, it's basically thought that she's holding the prime minister spot open for her son, Rahul Gandhi, we'll see how this plays out. Rahul, by his critics, is seen as very green, very inexperienced, uh, unable to lead his own party, let alone the country. Uh, And people don't view Congress very well at all, Congress Party's critics. I mean, they see they're just out of ideas, uh, economically bankrupt, and sort of embodied in the character of Manmohan Singh, just this, this, this politician who was never even elected to power. And again, those who are on Twitter are seeing a lot of this rhetoric play out. So this is what the BJP, the opposition party, this is the narrative that they want to put out. Right, Manmohan Singh, he was the architect of the 1990s liberation of, of, of liberalization of India's economy. So, so the, the main candidate for the BJP says, fine, he may have, have, have done this for India's economy, but 
I know business, I'm a businessman, I can, I can bring India back to economic power. All Congress has done is they've engaged in this vote bank politics. They've handed out uh, money to these, these uh, minority groups without funding them, etc., etc. So this is a picture that the BJP wants to paint, uh, and their current candidate is the chief minister of the state of Gujarat, Narendra Modi. Modi's current campaign, what he really focuses on in his, in his rallies and his speeches, is his economic success as a leader of Gujarat. Uh, he says, sure, Singh, the current prime minister, may be an economist. I'm no economist, but I'm a chaiwala. I'm a, I'm a tea seller. He apparently has some sort of tea business in his background. I think he worked, he, he didn't sit at a tea stand handing out tea, but this is the image he wants to give. So I know business and I can bring my business uh, expertise to all of India. And he holds these things called chaipe charchas, tea stall discussions, which he broadcasts across social media. I mean, he's really got millions, uh, at least a million unpaid volunteers that he's, he's uh, harnessed through his social media campaign, and they're willing to go out, organize these discussions. Narendra Modi will pop in on Twitter sometimes and answer questions from people. India hasn't seen uh, anything like this before. And yeah, he knows business, he says. When he visits Bihar, he says, the state of Bihar, he says, your economy is doing terrible, I'm going to turn Bihar into Gujarat. He visits UP and says, I'm going to turn UP into Gujarat. He doesn't say how he's going to do this, but it's hardly a criticism of him because none of the parties are really saying what their economic plan is, at least not from where I'm sitting. This election is run very much on style um, over substance. Um, Modi says, we have Amul butter. We have Amul butter in Gujarat. This is a very famous dairy company. Don't you want, don't you want Amul butter in your state? And the crowd goes wild. They really do, because they do. They really want it. Um, but <clears throat> Modi, he is a, he's one of the most controversial politicians. He's definitely the most controversial politician on the scene today. And I want to talk about this a bit, because it's... This is being discussed a lot now, and it's, it's a good discussion to be having because it hasn't been had over the past decade. Uh, his nomination as the BJP's prime minister candidate was only made possible in April when a heavily criticized Supreme Court-appointed special investigation team, an SIT, uh, reported a lack of evidence directly linking Modi to waves of violence that occurred in his state in 2002. And some of you may be familiar with this, uh, with this horrific story on which upwards of 1,000, maybe as many as 2,000 people were, were murdered. They were murdered in the streets in their homes uh, in waves of anti-Muslim violence in Gujarat. And the government, it's not clear, it's not clear at all to me what role they actually played in this, but they were criticized either for not doing enough to stop it, and the harshest critics, uh, they blame Modi, the government, and Modi himself for encouraging and implicate him in the violence. We don't know what's happened. The, as far as I can tell, the Supreme Court, this, this investigation team has decided that there wasn't enough evidence or cleared him. He was given a clean chit is what everyone says, so he can run for prime minister. India's not very good at running these sorts of investigations. Modi was never questioned. Uh, and some really important questions that they haven't been answered because they haven't been asked at all. So people are just, uh, people are asking a lot right now, though. Um, for example, um, well, I've been, when I look at the findings, the questions I look for, for example, that have been asked quite a bit, but no one in the government has actually answered, is how is it that during this violence in 2002 that these primarily Hindu groups had access to voter records, government voter records that showed where Muslims were, 
where they live so they could target those places specifically. We don't know where they got them. We don't know where they got them because it hasn't been looked into. Modi's critics say that he or his government was somehow involved. I actually think we just don't know what happened. And then the most unpleasant, I mean, really, really unpleasant part of this, but it's being talked about every day right now. Uh, it's just the, the horrific act that led to this uh, violence in 2002, which was the burning, a, a horrible burning, of a train carrying mostly Hindu pilgrims back from a site in Ayodhya. I showed you this picture of the, the mosque that had been destroyed and the temple that was being built. So there's a group of, of Hindu pilgrims from Gujarat who are going to that site to agitate for the construction of this temple on the site of the demolished 16th century mosque. This has become a very political issue. It was an issue very much uh, a cornerstone of the BJP. This is Modi's party in the 90s. Modi doesn't talk about it now. Other people on stage with him still very much do. So in, in 2002, a group of pilgrims was coming back from this site and their train was set on fire, possibly, even probably, by a riding group of Muslims. We actually don't know because the investigation into this simply wasn't conducted. And, and how wasn't it conducted? And, and this is really unpleasant, but we just don't know exactly what happened. Uh, for two weeks, there was no investigation. The bodies from the actual train, it's, it's extremely distressing. But instead of being handed over to, instead of being kept where they are, instead of having the investigators look at this, instead of having medical teams look at this, uh, before even notifying the families of the victims that their loved ones had been killed in this horrific act, the Gujarat government made the decision somehow, we don't know how, to hand the bodies over to the VHP, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad. This is a Hindu nationalist group. And they were moved to the largest city in Gujarat. Um, it used to be the capital, Ahmedabad. And only one thing could happen from the government handing these bodies over. They were paraded around the streets. Uh, and this is what incited these waves of violence. And we just, uh, we just don't know what's happened. Modi's actually never been questioned about this. Uh, there was one interview where he was, and obviously he was very uncomfortable. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to make of it. The one thing I can say is, though, uh, when he visits, he's, he's very much running on this, this horrific thing that happened. Whether or not, what, in that he's visiting places in India right now where there have been uh, recent outbreaks of communal violence, that is, violence between Hindus and Muslims. He was just in Muzaffarnagar two days ago. He's visiting Purnia uh, in, on March 10th. That's where I do my work in Bihar, where there was this year, there, were, there was a, a small outbreak. So he's visiting these areas, and he says, he gives his rhetoric, he says, I've brought communal harmony to Gujarat, uh, and I can bring it here too. Don't you want that? And he'll sort of implicate the, the local Congress governments, whoever the local leadership is in the violence there. And this is very much something that Modi supporters will say, and there, there, there are millions of them. And, and they'll say, and I almost don't blame them because if you look back to 1947 and Modi and his speeches will start going back to all these episodes in India's history, he'll, he'll and his supporters will say, well, fine, if, if you're implicating Modi, then we should implicate uh, Rajiv Gandhi, this is Indira Gandhi's um, son, uh, in the anti-Sikh riots, uh, anti riots of 1984 that came after the assassination of his mother, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, by a Sikh bodyguard. And they go back to 1947. Why didn't Gandhi, why didn't Nehru stop the bloodshed that happened after partition? And these are actually good questions, and, and at least back to 1984, that's still being investigated. So again, India doesn't seem to have the investigative capacity to find out what really happened in these, in these things, even though uh, people, I, I think most people actually want uh, to know in general. We just don't know how to, how to find out. For me, um, I, 
I mean, my question is, at this point, does history even matter? I don't, I don't study history. I don't study politics. I, I study literature. I study literature, so I'm interested in, in development of character, right? I study, uh, I study poetry, so I'm, I'm okay with uh, ambiguity. And I study, I study folklore is actually my main field, so I'm interested in the power of narrative. And I hope, I, I really do, at, at the, the idea of Modi, he's, he's very likely, he may very likely be prime minister. I hope that the narrative here is that... that in whatever way or another, it seems clear to me that he's horrified by what's happened. How could he not be? Um, and I hope that the narrative is that his political career forged over the last 12 years amid such violence and sort of hateful rhetoric, which he's erased from his speeches now to a, to a certain extent. So I hope that, that maybe he really is the one. I mean, he talks now about the unity of Hindu, Muslims, uh, Hindu and Muslim brothers and sisters in India, and maybe only someone like Modi can, can sort all this out. I mean, that's all I can hope for at, at, at this moment. I don't know what else to say. Um, I mentioned the anti-corruption movement, though. This is sort of a third path that some people are looking to. Uh, this, if some of you were at Amitabh Mathu's speech, thank you, I've got five minutes, which is perfect. Uh, if you were at Amitabh Mathu's speech at the America, uh, not America, listen to me, Australia, I just arrived from the U.S., right? So at the Australia Indian Institute, but he talked about this movement as a breath of fresh air that has waved into uh, Indian politics. And there's a lot of excitement over this anti-corruption movement that maybe it can be free from this caste-based or religion-based politics that has been plaguing India's uh, politics for over, for over six decades now. We'll see what happens. They won in Delhi. They only ruled for 49 days. They resigned the government after his anti-corruption bill didn't pass, and they took their fight to the national campaign. They've been fielding candidates audaciously in a number of, of places. In, 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 I mean, they have no way of winning, except they had no way of winning in Delhi, and the very audaciousness of their campaign of fielding all these national candidates may be what actually pulls them. They may be able to pull something together. Uh, we'll see. Um, some people think that, that Kedrawal has a chance of being prime minister instead of Modi um, or Rahul Gandhi, who I, I don't think many people now seriously think could win. So we'll, we'll see what happens here. I don't know how he'd rule. His party is the, the candidates they're feeling are from radically different ideologies. And we have pro-business, we have anti-business. Um, so I don't know how it would work. But, but it's, it's interesting to see something united around an issue just as this. And then just, just to finish up, because I know we're running out of time, um, I mean, those are, those are the three sort of things that, that I'm watching, just how is this vote banking going to work now? What's going to happen with this anti-corruption movement? And then just how is social media just completely changing the landscape of, of Indian electoral politics? We haven't seen anything like this in India before. And, and Congress, the Congress Party has just been blindsided by completely. Their use of Twitter is very much for lecturing broadcasting information. The BJP is using it for engaging, for discussing, for mobilizing to, to great effect. Uh, it's very exciting to watch. And if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, it's just seen as cooler. It's just cooler to, to support Modi right now. Uh, it, just, it just seems that way. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. So I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. The polls, um, uh, Dirk had some predictions. The polls have been wrong in the past, and just last week a bunch of these polls were found to be corrupt and influenced by outside money. So I, I, I actually have no idea what to make of these polls. If you go back to 2004 and, and 2009, India has elections that are constitutionally mandated, have elections every five years. Uh, a lot of them end up being completely wrong. Uh, but it looks like no matter what, if you go on the buzz, on the ground, Congress is headed for historic defeat. Um, Modi is looking to do very well with the BJP. And Kedrawal and this Aam Admi Party, this anti-corruption party, looks very likely... 
to score some seats and they may be able to pull off the magic that they did in Delhi and scrape together another sort of minority coalition government and who knows what would happen with that. In terms of what it means for Australia or for my United States, um, none of these parties have articulated clear foreign policy uh, let alone economic policy that, that I can make out. If Modi's elected, I imagine there'd be an upswing in the economy um, and there'd be just interest in what this means for trade. Victoria, the state of Victoria here, just sent a trade delegation to, to India a few weeks ago. So, um, but no matter what, I mean, the, the politics are definitely, the elections have been handed over to the IIT generation, the Twitter generation, and, and big changes are in store for India this year. So yeah, thank you. Okay, so we've now got around 20, 25 minutes for questions, half an hour, depending on what demand is like. So um, yes. you guys have got to get up and keep performing. Uh, I think the room is sufficiently small that we don't need a roving mic, but I might repeat or summarise the question for the, for the benefit of um, recording and for, for people uh, tuning in from distance. So like I said, the question was, what's the foreign policy priorities of either Jacobi or Prabowo in Indonesia? Yeah, for, for Jacob it's very difficult because um, he has no experience in foreign policy whatsoever. Um, he is currently, as I said, the governor of Jakarta, and before that he was the mayor of a small town, in, well, not small, but a, a small town in Java. So um, he would, it, it may depend a little bit on who nominates him, but um, if he gets nominated by the PDRP, um, he would have to toe the line a little bit, and they're a sort of nationalist party. Um, so it may become a bit more... Yeah, nationalistic, and they may try to push Indonesia's position in Southeast Asia, in particular in foreign policy. But, um, but that said, Yudo Yono was was very keen on that too, of enhancing Indonesia's image internationally. He was probably more um, engaged with his international uh, duties than his national duties at some point. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard to say. But it would probably be a continuation, mostly, of what we've seen from Yudo Yono. And as I said, Jokowi would probably delegate most of foreign policy to people who are already experienced in the in the government anyway. So the, so the question's about, um, have there been international pressure or reaction to the fact that leading candidates in both sides have got significant questions about human rights abuse? So Ian, first and Yeah, I think I only, I, I know the US situation better. If, if Modi is elected, I think a lot of it will be just be pushed aside already. I mean, he, we have a similar situation. He's not allowed to get a diplomatic visa to the US right now either, but, but the US State Department has already started making overtures um, given his rise. We had one person just go to meet with him. I can't remember who from the State Department, but he's very much riding it out. He's wearing his refusal, disallowment to go to the US as sort of a badge right now, and he's waiting for the US to, to come to him. Uh, and they, they will, they absolutely would. Uh, I think given the number of questions and given how much we don't know what, what happened, I don't see another. As some, BJ, some of his supporters on Twitter are saying, which I don't understand, is they say if the U.S. will speak to, and they list all these horrific dictators that we're speaking to right now, they should speak to Modi, which isn't a good comparison, but it's, it's true. <laughs> and, um, he's got a, and he's got a blank sheet. So. Right. <laughs> about Prabowo. Yeah, similar, similar about Prabowo in Indonesia. I think um, if, he, if he does get elected, I don't, I don't think he will. I think in the end... Jacobi will be the next president. But if Prabowo does become president, then I guess that's sorted out somehow. Because he's already been you know, speaking to diplomats in Jakarta, to foreign correspondents, etc. So he's basically rebranded himself domestically quite well. Um, it's actually more internationally where his human rights record constantly comes up. In Indonesia itself, it's only some NGOs who bring it up. Um, but most people have 
yeah, chosen to forget about that in domestically. This is what diplomacy is for. Okay, so, so the question is about what role or influence regional parties are going to have in shaping the coalition in the election. Uh, just to give one example, so you know, so there was uh, this regional party from the state of Andhra Pradesh that was agitating for the split of Andhra Pradesh into two states, Telangana and Andhra Pradesh. This was a big issue lately, uh, and that very much influenced what both parties are doing. There's a lot of excitement over that, and that, that had a big effect. Um, I can't speak to, exa- but you're right though, right now Congress is ruling as, as a, it's, it's a coalition through the United Progressive Alliance. No, no party is going to win an outright majority right now. I don't, I don't know exactly what things are going to look like. All I can say is things are changing rapidly. Uh, for example, I know the state of Bihar best, and Nitish Kumar is the chief minister of Bihar. His regional party was allied with the BJP. Once Modi became their, their candidate, Nitish Kumar severed ties with them, uh, allowing Modi to come to a state. He basically wasn't coming for 10 years because of, because of his controversial nature. I mean, it's sort of a mess. And now that, party has, that regional party has split half of it supporting Modi, half not. So, so without actually being able to answer your question of which side people are going to go to, all I can say is it's actually just, as far as I know, changing from day to day. Yeah, it seems to be incredibly fluid as far as yes. So, so, so the question is about the extent to which Jacoby <laughs> uses his local connections, particularly language, to build his pop- popularity. Yeah, that speaks to linguists from that. <laughs> um, to be honest, I haven't been to any of the um, campaigns, so I'm not 100% sure. Um, what's perhaps, well, what I can say is that when there's... You know, I mean, the campaign is not in flux anyway. What he does is he does his job as governor in Jakarta. And, of course, people see that as sort of campaigning. You know, he's presenting himself with what he does, and that's much more than what Yudhiyono is actually doing. Um, but my work is mostly outside Java. And the point is that outside Java, regardless of who you ask, well, not regardless, that will mean 100%, but the vast majority of people you ask say, I vote for Jokowi. It doesn't matter that he's from Java. There used to be this dichotomy between Java versus non-Java, but people see that he goes out to talk to people. I don't know in what language. I assume it's mostly in Bahasa Indonesia, but probably when he's out in his own backyard in Solo, he would probably use Javanese, I suspect. Um, But for people outside Java, that doesn't matter. They just love him because he goes out to the people and actually talks about rubbish and sewage and stuff. So, yeah, so we've got a question that relates to um, the role of gender and women in the electoral landscape in both India and, and Indonesia. Yeah, there is, as you say, there's a quota. 30% of candidates um, that are nominated by a party should be females. Um, in the past, it hasn't... Is that, is that a government... That's a, a yeah, in the, that's past, it, in the past, it was a recommendation. It was an act, but in the act, it stated that it is recommended that parties do that. I... Oh, I'd have to check, but I think they've actually um, tightened that a bit. I think they have to do it now. Um, I know, again, from the areas where I've been just recently, that at the local level, yeah, some parties are struggling <laughs> to, to fill those um, spots, um, partly because they feel that the women won't win them the seat. You know, they're not as popular, they're not as widely known. Um, so at the local level, they often then resort to nominating relatives of well-known males. Um, and then if they do get elected, and that has happened in the past, and I'm afraid it will be the same in 2014, they often have very little political experience and they don't do much to actually enhance the image of women in politics. Um, so I've spoken to some of the women's empowerment groups, etc. They are very critical of this quota because they believe that 
yeah, it doesn't actually have our course if just the daughter of the governor gets into parliament. So I'm afraid it will be very similar in 2014 again. Definitely at the, at the local level, I'm, I'm more familiar with Indian village politics, but there are, there are rules about women needing to be head of village councils and things. Uh, at the national level, I always, in the US I'd always point out that India has more women in parliament than, than, than we have congresswomen. I mean, the US is terribly in this regard. India does have a history of, I mean, people complain about, about um, women's rights and, and India definitely, and there's a lot of discussion about this, about this this year in this election, but the counter side to that is that there's so many strong women who were sort of singled out for power in India. So some people see this as a paradox uh, and there's definitely a couple of very interesting um, women running. I'm thinking of Medha Patkar has just taken up the, on this, this common man's anti-corruption party in Bombay. Very curious to see what happens uh, in her race. So, but there are some uh, things put in place to ensure that women do get a certain number of seats. Yeah. So the, so the question's about the extent to which Jokowi is popular in the parts of Indonesia that would perhaps rather not be in Indonesia. Um, and if he wins, what it might mean for them. Mm. Uh, no, I don't know specifically. The polls are usually, they, they cover every province and then the, there's usually not much variation in the support levels um, for Jokowi, meaning he is universally popular, which would include Papua um, by implication. But whether it's much, much higher or much, much lower there, because um, it's a very small population there, so there would only have very few respondents there. I'm not too sure, but I would, I, I would assume it's similar. It's a, it's a slightly different case to compare to Yudhi Yono in 2009 because Yudhi Yono was given credit for his role in the Aceh peace process. So Yudhi Yono uh, was quite popular um, as a president in Aceh for that. Um, but nothing has yet been achieved in Papua. Um, so there's no, none of the two can, or three candidates can claim to have actually done anything yet. So um, there's nothing they can look back to. I think Papuans just like everyone else in Indonesia, sees what Jokowi is doing. And they will probably infer from that that if he becomes president, maybe he may also try to you know, resolve that issue a bit more constructively than Yuri Yuno has done. So the question is really about what's the sort of elect- electoral points of difference in, in India. Are they about party, ideology, or is it a mishmash? Yeah, I, while I said it's more based on style rather than sub- substance, I think there's genuine... And as far as I understand it, there's genuine differences in economic platforms articulated by, by these two main parties in, in, in as much as I think the, the criticism of the current ruling party and the way they've been sort of handing out these subsidies that aren't quite funded and the way that economists are saying this has stagnated the economy, the rupee's been falling. This seems to be a, a legitimate critique. I, I, I don't know if it's correct or not. Um, and Modi must have some sort of pro-business platform, even if he hasn't fully articulated it. Uh, so there's, there's, there's something there. But in terms of how the, the races are being run, I, I think it's based much more on, on the personalities. I don't, the media, because this is what happens everywhere, right? The media doesn't seem to be reporting on, and people complain about it. People in the media complain about it. Why aren't we reporting on, on, on these policy differences? But, um, and uh, so, yeah, that's what's, that's what's happening. I, I think they would be quite different, though, is my sense. Yeah, so maybe they're campaigning in similar-ish ways, but how they would govern would be quite, quite sure, different. Sure, yeah. yeah. All right, maybe, I think we're... Sorry, uh, go ahead. Yeah, just a, quick, just a quick comment about Indonesia. You're generally right, and that's certainly my interpretation. I should say, though, that I tend to be a bit more cynical than some of my colleagues. Some point out that the parties in Indonesia do matter a bit more than myself and some others um, see it. Um, 
I tend to think that parties only matter at the very basic dividing line, um, whether you are a very conservative Muslim or if you are a member of a minority religion. Because at, at that basic um, pillar, there are still parties who have different policies. So there are some parties that are very strongly rooted in Islam, and there are some that draw most of their support from either uh, religious minorities or very secular Muslims. So if you are a very, very conservative Muslim, you will probably not vote for PDIP because PDIP stands for sort of a very secular outlook and incorporating lots of Christians in their party. Um, that said, it was the same with um, Pada Democrat, the party of Yudi Yono, and then lots of very conservative Muslims were shown in 2009 to have voted for Yudi Yono nevertheless. Um, and I suspect that the same will eventually happen with Jokowi in the presidential election. Just in the parliamentary election, I think that div division that still exists. Um, but yeah, as I said, generally, you're right, I think it's the candidates, the candidates that matter most. All right, I think that we should probably call a halt to proceedings. Um, it remains only firstly to thank Ian and Dirk for their insights. So, we will be back here in about three months' time again to have a look once it's all done. When the various elections are done, we'll do a sort of look back because we've been looking forward and we'll do a look back. Um, there will also be more Latrobe Asia seminars between now and then. Um, so, we're still in negotiations, but we're, we're planning um, the next one to be on trust in Asia and using, uh, having some people who've been working on long, quite long, longitudinal studies on social trust uh, in about a month's time. But keep tuned to your email, which is the segue to the, if you're not on our mailing list and would like to be, uh, we have a sign-up sheet at the door. Um, we're keen to, to have as many people be able to participate in these things as possible. Um, but in a world of social media and multiple forms of communication, we have a limited capacity to get a hold of your eyeballs. Thank you for coming, and um, we look forward to seeing you to our next, at our next seminar and next event. So, thank you.